Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today with three very special guests. I'll let them introduce themselves in a second, but we're here to talk about Austrian economics as it compares to classical economics, whereas Keynesian school of thought and uh, compare and contrast the different approaches and the assumptions uh, underlying them. Perhaps, Noah, we could start with you in terms of brief background and where you, what perspective you bring to this, this conversation. I did a PhD in uh, mainstream economics, studied macro for part of that, though I quit and uh, now I, after I reached into the finance professor, I'm now a, an opinion writer at Bloomberg Opinion. And that is what I do. Cool. Parker? Yeah. So I'm far less qualified to talk about economics, having uh, taken a bunch academically in college, did some graduate work in policy. So adjacent stuff around copyright, intellectual property, did a bunch of programming. And now, as one does, uh, I do venture capital. So I'm obligated to opine about economics and policy on the internet regularly. So here we are. All roads lead to venture capital. <laughs> and Stefan? Oh, uh, yeah. I'm Stefan Kinsella. I'm a patent attorney and uh, in Houston, Texas. And I was a general counsel for a laser company. I do high-tech patent work. And I'm also a libertarian writer and speaker and theorist and heavily into Austrian economics. So why don't we start maybe with uh, just some definitions of, of how we de- define the different schools of thought and we can go more granular. Stefan, would you like to take the a quick primer on, on some of the you know most striking differences between the Austrian school and, and some of the other schools? Sure, I'll give it a shot and keep in mind I'm not an academic economist and that might be to my advantage. The economics that is taught in, in the mainstream schools is largely voodoo economics or, 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 or pseudo-economics. I'd say the main schools now, I think Marxian economics is on the decline, although the labor theory of value still informs a lot of people's thoughts about policy and, and economics. Uh, you have Keynesian economics, which focuses heavily on governmental stimulation of the money supply. And I'd say the mainstream economic thought now is influenced heavily by the Chicago School of Milton Friedman, which is what we would call positivist economics. It's sort of the idea that economics should be modeled the science based upon the way the natural sciences work, which would be physics and chemistry and things like that. The sort of logical positivism or the Popperian testing idea, the idea that you formulate a hypothesis and you have to test it. So it's heavily empirical. Now, the Austrian school is distinct from that primarily, I would say, in methodology. That is, the Austrians, which was started primarily by Karl Menger in Vienna, Austria in the 1870s, and the main proponents now would be, uh, or the most famous figures would be Hayek, who won the Nobel Prize in 1974, and Ludwig von Mises, the, the distinction between the Austrians and the mainstream economics we have now is that the mainstream economists believe in positivism. That is, they believe you have to formulate these these laws, like even of supply and demand and the idea that minimum wage, increasing that would lead to unemployment. You have to test that against the data to see if that's correct, whereas the Austrians have a more deductive method based upon the individual perspective. And based upon primarily the idea that value is a subjective phenomenon, not an objective one. That is, value is just what the individual who is acting 
seeks to achieve in all of his actions. So you can't measure it cardinally like the Marxists and even the Keynesians and the, and the empiricists sort of end up believing. So that's one of the main d- distinctions, I would say, is that we view things from the individual perspective. We think value is subjective only, like you can't measure it. This results in a lot of other views, like you can't centrally plan the economy. You can't scientifically plan the economy with a central committee. Government can really they only screw things up. All they could do is provide a stable property system that allows the economy to operate in decentralized fashion. So that's sort of the Austrian view. And But the, the main thing to keep in mind is that it's not positive. That is, we don't rely upon empirical studies to test our theories. We think you can prove deductively from the logic of human action, as Mises called it, that increasing the minimum wage would lead to unemployment, that inflating the money supply would cause price inflation, and so on. It's not a result of witnessing what happens as a result of logical deduction. Noah, how would you sort of, uh, d- just to get the definitions out, how would you sort of define the more mainstream views in contrast to that, or, w- or what color would you would you add? So the mainstream view basically says that economics, you know, to, to what degree possible should operate like any science. You should try to figure out how the world works. You should do that through a combination of observation and modeling, sort of empirics and theory, which work in a reciprocal process where you have some write down some ideas about how you think the world works, test that against the data, you know, then go back and reevaluate, et cetera, et cetera. That's yeah, you know, it's supposed to work. And then armed with the sort of understanding of how things do work, you then, you know, turn to philosophy to ask the question, what do we want? What kind of society or philosophy or politics? And then you you turn there to ask the normative questions like, what kind of society do we want to build? And then given those goals, use our understanding of the way the world works to accomplish them. And this is basically what's been done with science. You know, So we get uh, understand, let's say, hydrology and uh, geology. And then you know, we understand the laws of how fluids move through rocks and how rivers flow and get replenished and all that stuff. And then we you know, turn to politics and philosophy to say, well, who should get the water? You know, like, who do we want to get the water to? And where do we, what do we want to put a dam? Do we want to irrigate? Do we want to do this and that? And then we turn back to the hydrologists and the, and the geologists and say, hey, uh, how do we do this? You know, what kind of things do we build that allow us to achieve our goals? And with natural science, this has been an amazingly successful paradigm. Now, social science is, of course, harder than natural science because people you know, are a lot trickier and harder to understand than particles and systems of people are even trickier and harder to understand than individual people. However, it, it's the idea that the same basic approach will work as well as anything can work for economics, even though the results may be sloppier and more proximate in the end. So maybe before getting into the places where, where there are differences and we touched a little bit on, on them, where are the places and where there is a, there's agreement? Well, I mean, there's specific policies that they might agree on. So, you know, so, so for example, um, there's a school of mainstream macroeconomists called the new classical or real business cycle school. Those are sometimes used interchangeably. And these people, you know, especially centered around the University of Minnesota, but also Chicago and a couple other places in the late seventies and the eighties, these people wrote down a whole bunch of theories in the language of mainstream economics that incorporated some, though not all of traditional Austrian views of how the economy works. So the example, for example, the idea that um, recessions are natural 
and, you know, sort of unavoidable. And while they're not good, they're the best, sort of the best the economy you can do. Uh, if you print a bunch of money in order to try to forestall a recession, you're just going to get a lot of inflation and you're not going to increase aggregate demand or whatever that even means. They don't even recognize that that even means something. And ultimately, the economy is driven by sort of innovation and technology, business people building, you know, building businesses with technological innovations that affect the real productive capacity of the economy. That's why it was called the real business cycle school. And as you can see, if you know about, you know, Austrian views of the business cycle, there are some big differences there, but there are also some similarities. And in fact, the, the people who made RBC models, real business cycle models, did say that they were heavily influenced by Hayek, by Schumpeter, by um, you know the Austrians in general. And so there is some flow of ideas from one to the other. They just speak a very different language. I would, so Noah repeated a little bit of what I sort of criticize as the difference. Like he, you know, the natural sciences have worked, and therefore economics should seek to emulate those models. And that is. So that is one difference. The Austrians think that that is a mistake that the, the social sciences have made in trying to emulate the natural sciences because the natural sciences seek to understand the causal world. And so we're trying to find the causal laws of reality, whereas economics seeks to understand the consequences of human action, which is purpose-driven or goal-driven or choice-driven. So it's teleological. And so you just have a, have a different model for theirs. So that's why there's this type of dualism. But I would say what we have in common is, yeah, we're trying to understand reality. We just have different mental tools to do it. And in some part, this is due to language. The business cycle theory of the Austrians was initiated by Ludwig von Mises, who I believe is the greatest and the, and the chief model of the progenitor of Austrian economics. Hayek, his sort of student, followed in his path and got the Nobel Prize in 74 for that. Some of the Austrians have a little bit of a conspiracy mind, and Mises died in 73, and they think that the, the Nobel Committee waited until 74 to give him, to give the prize to his student, Hayek, so they wouldn't have to give it to Mises because he was a little bit more libertarian in his views. I'm not sure if I believe there's any evidence for that. But, but yeah, the Austrian theory is that when the government's control of the money supply through a central bank it can't help itself politically but to inflate money one way or the other, and that causes Pantheon effects, which means harming early, harming later beneficiaries of the money than earlier, right? So it hurts, it helps the banks and hurts the savers, and it causes inflation, which reduces people's spending power, and it also gives rise, sets in motion the business cycle. So the Austrian theory is a business cycle theory, and that probably has influenced some of the uh, the other schools as well. So, I mean, it seems to me as we're talking about this, something that's worth stating explicitly and perhaps discussing is, you know, when I talk to Austrians, I think fundamentally the difference of opinion we have comes back to one of values as opposed to differences on, for example, data, right? And so as I think about the Austrian model, it seems to me that there's a high correlation with libertarianism because the fundamental value is optimizing for uh, the autonomy of the individual. So inflation is bad because that reduces my autonomy with respect to my capital. Central planning is bad. Trying to achieve a global maximum is a bad idea because um, we should just let all of the individuals work at achieving their local maxima. 
in contrast to the uh, more classical model that says, hey, look, if we can figure this stuff out, we can collectively create a, an economy that is better for all individuals than individually we would create on our own. So you may or may not buy that, but it seems to me that that's a valid debate and at the heart of this stuff. When often we're talking about policies without explicitly acknowledging what's driving our values about those policies, would you say that's fair? If you're, if you're asking me, I'll, let me have a comment on that. I think that actually the Austrians are to be commended for being explicit about this. So the Austrians say that economics is what they call wertfrei or value-free. So they, they sort of try to clearly distinguish between their economic analysis and between policy recommendations. So to them, the purpose of economics is to understand how the economy and the market works and what the consequences in general of different interventions would be. It, then it's a policy matter as a human being, like not as an economist, to say, okay, well, if you favor human prosperity and welfare, and if you want this policy to achieve A, B, and C, then you should do the following. But that's not, strictly speaking, an economic valuation. So because most people do at least say that they favor human prosperity, it, once you understand basic economics, you understand that most government proposals will actually harm it. You know, if you raise the minimum wage, you will harm human welfare. Uh, increasing the, the supply of money can only help some people, but at, to the detriment of others, and overall harms people. So, if you favor human welfare, then you oppose these government measures. So, strictly speaking, Austrian economics is not a libertarian thing, but it does tend to attract them because. Uh, it helps you recognize the dangers of centralism and political control. And it helps you appreciate why we have prosperity in the first place, which is the free interaction of individuals with a certain degree of property uh, property rights. Well, it seems to me that, I mean, there's a value baked into that, right? When we say in, inflation is theft is a common one, or um, the minimum wage will per se hurt folks by uh, reducing the employment rates. You can say, well, like, that may be true. But that's a policy outside of the context in which we're applying it, right? So we might have higher minimum wage because we say, look, working below the poverty line doesn't make sense. So we'll raise the minimum wage and have a corresponding transfer to uh, handle the folks who would otherwise be employed at that the subliving wage who, who aren't, right? So I think you, you're sort of, you know, making a value, you're applying a set of values to policies in isolation, which I think the, you know, the more classical school and feel free to, you know, speak on its behalf, Noah, um, would say, well, yeah, but let's not be naive and look at these things in isolation. Let's look broadly at this complex system and see what family policies would be that would maximize the welfare. I think to say, for example, that, that raising minimum wage or that the government printing money are in and of themselves harmful to humans bakes in a set of assumptions and uh, around what the economy looks like or what how monetary policy interacts with other policies that the mayor may not hold the way that you know uh, economists mainstream economists think about it is to say all right well suppose we're considering a minimum wage all right what are the possible effects that could happen uh, how much will people's incomes go up whose incomes will go up by how much will they go up how will the structure of production be changed how will productivity be affected who if anyone will be thrown out of work how will the distribution of money in the economy change or of, of wealth, real consumption, all that stuff? And so and then armed with that knowledge of, of what the likely effects of a minimum wage would be, policymakers and activists and anyone are really 
better able to determine whether they want a minimum wage. So, for example, suppose you find that, uh, you know, raising in the minimum wage to $15 would have would would throw a few people out of work and then, you know, like a couple hundred people out of work in a, in a big city and then would dramatically raise the incomes of, of thousands of people. Now, I can't tell you off the top of my head, like, oh, is that worth it? I mean, I, I could. I can give you my opinion. I could say, you know, oh, no, you know, you've harmed 100 people to help thousands of people, but that's, that's not acceptable. You shouldn't be able to harm even one person to help someone else. And then, or, or I could say, well, actually, you know, whatever you're doing or not doing, someone's, there's going to be winners and losers. Someone's going to get hurt. Someone's going to get helped, et cetera, et cetera. So this is actually good to do. You know, that's, um, those are two stylized, simple versions of common sort of ethical frameworks you can work in. But no matter what your ethical framework is, no matter what you think is right or wrong, it helps to know, you know, how things really work. It helps to know the fact. It helps to know if we do this minimum wage, what will happen? In other words, it's never bad to be forewarned and forearmed. Right. It's never bad to be informed. It's never bad to have a better understanding of the consequences of what you might do. And that, I think, is really the argument for positive economics. It's that no matter what you want, it's better to have the facts. And let me say, I, I think in general, I would agree that the role of economics is to do that, is to say, to help you decide what the concept to know what the consequences of a given policy would be now what where austrians would disagree is they're they're very skeptical of the ability to empirically quantifiably determine what these things would be so they talk about setters paribus or or just tendencies so the point is a methodological one we can know this from from deductive reasoning we can know this from the very understanding of what it means to have the money supply and how people use money we know that if we increase the supply of money that its purchasing power will go down this is just the consequence of the law of supply and demand really and we've known for a but long is supply time, and demand always true i mean i can think of lots of situations in which you know the the laws of su- supply and demand actually don't work i i mean we know that there are those cases i i you know and then the Austrians would say, well, that's a case where the ceteris is not paribus, right? So, exactly. so then, and then, and then the positivists would say, well, then Austrian economics is basically a tautology or empty. And then we get down to right. Kantian and, and whether they're synthetic or a priori axioms. And of course, you know, the strict Austrians like Mises did rely upon synthetic a priori axioms. I side with them. I think they make sense, but I don't really think our basic human values are that controversial. Most people that engage in a conversation, like any conversation, are not going to say they're for human destruction and, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, they want prosperity. They want everyone to be better off. So I think we know already it's been a long established that, that impositions on free trade, that restrictions on free, uh, the minimum wage itself, it's not going to just harm 10 people and help everyone else. I mean, it's going to cause overall destruction of wealth. How much, you can't predict, but we have an idea from his story. And this is why Mises, by the way, has a famous book uh, in, in our circles called Theory and History, where he distinguishes between theory or deductive knowledge about the future and history, what we can know empirically, and how we can use that to model what's going on. So there are different models, but the basic idea of Austrian economics is that a private property order is essential uh, with a money system, with a private free market money, 
is essential for people to establish prices. And these prices have to be free market prices, and they are used as data by entrepreneurs to rationally calculate in the future. Creating more money doesn't create wealth because money is not wealth. It's just a, it's just a, it's, it's just a medium of exchange. So this is one of the central Austrian views, especially of libertarians, right, who, who tend to be Austrians. Hey, right. And, and so notice that a lot of these things you're saying are what we'd call positive statements about how economies work. The idea that minimum wage policies destroy wealth, the idea that money does not create value, a lot of these things. These are not, I mean, you can call these axioms if you really want, but that's not what an axiom really is. It's. Are, yeah, I don't think it's an axiom, but let me just point out, it's not a normative statement. It's, so when it's I say that right. it's not normative, so it's not, it's not a value statement. It is word fry. If I say that, look, if your goal, if your goal is to achieve equality and you don't really care what it does to overall well-being of, of humans in your society, minimum wage might achieve that. That is not a, I mean, that's just a prediction. That's just a, that's an explanation of how hum, uh, economics works. But most people don't want overall well-being to go down. They don't want prosperity to go down. They don't want us to be uh, demolished as a society. So we sure. take for granted these 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 values, but we don't. They're not part of economics. They're just assumptions. Let me put this a little more concretely, so people listening can can have a better concrete idea of what's at stake here. Let's take the minimum wage. So I can easily write down a model either in words or pictures or math. That says that minimum wage will just will reduce prosperity and will reduce output in the economy. But it turns out that if you have a very significant degree of monopoly power in an industry or in the economy as a whole, it's easily possible for minimum wage to actually increase prosperity and increase the number of people who have jobs, increase the amount of employment. You know, and, and of course, monopoly power is a situation where the law of supply and demand breaks down. Uh, because you have only a monopoly on one side and you don't have a b- whole bunch of competitive little entrepreneurs each trying to outdo the other one like you have in a competitive economy. So when you have monopoly power, which can happen for a number of reasons, you know, um, not just because the government decrees monopoly power, but you can also have things like network effects that create natural monopoly, then minimum wages can actually increase prosperity. Understanding that requires, you know, some basic understanding of economic theory. And also, you can empirically say, well, okay, yeah, sure, you wrote down a model where minimum wages increase prosperity, but does that ever actually really happen? And that's when you unleash the empiricists to go out and look for cases where maybe that did happen. And so, to me, this is a clear example of how the the sort of mainstream synthesis of empiricism and theory and normative and positive economics all come together you know, for very practical purposes. Well, Noah spoke earlier about the, our common goal being being realistic about these things. And if you want to be really realistic, so no one's just an Austrian, no one's just a libertarian, no one's just a whatever. There are public choice uh, insights that we, we have to draw on our experience and our reality. And first of all, the fact is that the, Aust- the Austrians, we deny the concept of monopoly outside the government. So there are no natural monopolies. So I wouldn't concede that to you. The real monopoly is the Why government. not? Well, b- because a monopoly means there's only one seller, and if there's no legal barrier to competition, there can always be other entrants into the market. What if there's increasing returns to scale? Well, 
just hold on a second. If let's say you think there's a monopoly and you want to have a legal regulation to try to tame that or prevent that, the only way to do that is with a legal system, and that's done by the government, by the legislature. The government, the state, is certainly a true monopoly and the only real monopoly around. So you, you that's not true. Why? If you're real, if you're realistic, the state is going to use its monopoly power, not to perfectly try to calibrate the market, but it's going to do it in all sorts of ways that benefit special interests and where the, the legislators are not perfectly attuned to everything. They don't have perfect data, according to you know, which is what the Austrians say. So the, the idea of, of using the biggest monopoly of all to try to stop what might be a temporary place priorities. The government's a worse is it's like, you know, the solution is worse than the problem. That's our view. I'm not arguing it, I'm just telling you that's our view. Okay. Uh, I'm curious. I think you... that a lot of that stuff's just not correct. I mean, you know, it ain't right. Well, I'd be curious if you have an opinion on uh, either one of you on um, historical examples, right? We went through a massive um, period of um, antitrust and breaking up of trusts in, in the last hundred years. Um, was that a bad idea? I like it. <laughs> As a libertarian and as an Austrian, I'm totally opposed to it. I think, look, antitrust law is completely immoral and illegitimate. There is nothing wrong or anti-capitalist or anti-property about people colluding or trying to set prices. Cartels usually don't work for, for competitive reasons, and the biggest cartels are government cartels like OPEC or the governments getting together uh, to do things. But <laughs> – no, antitrust law should be completely abolished. Intellectual property law, by the way, which I mentioned earlier before we started talking, is considered to be a form of property rights by most mainstream thinkers, but is not. It's really a form of government-granted monopoly, which causes problems, and then the government has to step in to remedy this. So, for example, you have uh, the government complaining about high prices for pharmaceuticals and wanting to regulate it with regulations like Bernie Sanders and these these chumps. And yet the reason we have these high prices is because of the patent system, which is a cause of the federal government in the first place. But you notice that even Ocasio-Cortez and Sanders, these guys don't go after the real root of the problem, which is the patent system itself. So you have to get to the fundamental analysis of the problem. You have to have true property rights, which is not government-granted monopolies. The problem is monopolies, but monopolies that are genuine monopolies, in my view – are always created by the state. I, so I'm probably much more sympathetic to your views on intellectual property than most folks. Um, and I'm, I'm just curious how you would think about this problem of these monopolies are granted by the state with the theory being that um, non-rivalrous goods will be underproduced if they're not artificially protected by these monopolies, right? I don't I'd be curious. I don't think that's a theory, but, but I can explain why, but go ahead. Okay, yeah, no. So I, I'm curious how you would think about production of these goods, these the, it, it, broadly intellectual property, patent, copyright, in a world where these protections right. didn't exist? Would they be? Would there be less of these things? Would there be more of these things? How would that economy so, work? Okay, so it's, it's a complicated question. I've, I've spoken hundreds of hours on this topic, so I can try to summarize some of this. First of all, I think that the theory you mentioned is an after-the-fact after rationalization copyright and patent copyright arose because the state wanted to censor free speech that it didn't want promoted so this was uh, you go back to the statute of Anne in 1710 uh, there's just no doubt about that it's copyright censors and limits free speech and I, 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 that's not my understanding and my understanding of that law was that it was pushed by publishers who wanted a 
Uh, they wanted to get the rights from creators and monetize those rights with their printing presses. Well, I mean, that's why I say it's complicated. So what happened was originally before we had the printing press, the guilds, uh, the church and the state together could 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 determine what was going to be printed because it was all done by hand. Then the printing press came about, and so like in England, the stationer's company was was chartered as a mono- – they had a monopoly, which is either a patent or a copyright. I don't know what you call that, but they were the only ones who could print things. And when their monopoly was going to expire, the publishers had been used at that point to having a chokehold on what could be published. So they lobbied parliament, and they got the Statute of Anne published, uh, enacted in 1710, and that led to the system that – we still have today, but which is crumbling a little bit thanks to the internet, where you have these these gatekeepers, publishing industry that had the monopoly, and they they get the authors to sign their copyrights over, etc. So yeah, but it's all copyright is all a result of government control of, of of speech and thought, and the patent system originated when kings and monarchs would grant monopolies, protectionist monopolies, to certain favored court cronies. And this practice got so out of hand, you know, like I'm going to give you the right to sell sheep from this town or something like that, that the, the, stat, the, the statute of monopolies was enacted in England in 1623, which formalized the right to grant patents for inventions. So patents arose from that. It's only in the 1800s when the free market economists rose up against the American and the growing Western system of patent and copyright which originated in these practices, which are totally anti-market and totally anti-property rights and totally anti-capitalist. So the free market economists started rebelling against this. And so the entrenched publishing and technological industries, which are dependent upon these things, started saying, no, it's intellectual property. It's not a monopoly. Uh, And they came up with this rationalization that you have an underproduction of certain goods if you don't have the government come in and fix this market failure, which is why earlier I said that the whole idea of market failure is what mainstream economic theorists come up with to justify government regulation. So bottom line, uh, I am a patent lawyer, by the way, and I am I think I've seen in my 25 plus years of practice that the system uh, does utter devastation to innovation. The whole purpose of the patent system is to retard and impede and distort innovation. It does not encourage innovation. And that's not the purpose of law anyway. The purpose of law is to provide a stable set of property rights and to do justice so that people can have a free market and interact with each other without central oversight. The patent system does nothing but uh, retard and impede human progress. I believe that in a patent-free system, we would have a flourishing of innovation. We would have more technological innovation. Um, the patent system is one of the worst abominations that the government imposes on us. It's it's almost up there with the drug war, and war, and the central bank and government schools. That that's my opinion after 25 years of looking close at this. I mean, do you, it's interesting. Do you think that that's a direct function of your uh, thinking around Austrian economics? Because I actually don't think you and I are that far apart. But I I'm a strong believer in the concept of market failures in general. Partly because I was a patent attorney and a libertarian, and I started practicing in this field in 1992 or so, and I was getting uneasy with all the justifications that free market economists were giving for the patent system and the copyright system because they all seemed ad hoc or empirical or arbitrary. You know, they would say, well, the reason that you can only have a copyright for so many years or a patent for so many years is this, but you need it more than zero but less than infinity. And none of those reasons made sense to me. So I started looking for a rationale myself 
in Austrian and libertarian and property rights literature and economics, I started looking for a reason, a way, to, a better way to justify patent and copyright law since I was doing it for a living. And I finally realized with the benefit primarily of the Austrian concept of scarcity as the fundamental foundation of property rights, I realized that, ah, it's a mistake. The whole thing is a mistake. It's an abomination. So I do think that the Misesian, the particular brand of Austrian economics started by Ludwig von Mises and Rothbard and Hoppe, these guys who focus on scarcity, even David Hume did. He wasn't an Austrian, but the, the, the recognition that scarcity is the primary fact of the world that gives rise to property rights. And if you don't have economic scarcity in the sense of rivalrousness, right? that it makes no sense to have a property right unless there's a scarce resource. So I do think that understanding Austrian economics led me to my current anti-IP views. Yeah. I'm curious if you make a distinction between things like business process patents and um, drug patents, for example, right? Where I might put the former in the really bad category, completely retards innovation, has all sorts right. of problems, whereas the latter, and maybe I'm just sympathetic to you know how I think about this as an investor, I struggle to imagine a world where, you know, the yep. folks in my seat um, would be looking at putting, um, you know, tens of millions of dollars into highly speculative research to come up with a molecule right. that then I could not get right. um, this artificial monopoly on. Uh, you might notice I'm a little bit of a contrarian. So I actually have a contrary view even on IP skepticism. I actually think that, say, things like patent trolls and process patents and so-called low quality or bad patents are the least harmful thing. And I think that pharmaceutical patents are among the worst because, you know, pharmaceuticals help save people's lives. And so I think pharmaceutical patents are probably the most damaging because they raise prices so much. And by the way, the prices are high in part because of the government, like the FDA system, like the regulatory review system. So the government imposes this onerous review process. Sure, sure. And causes prices to be really high. And then the government says, well, prices are so high for these poor entrepreneurs. We need to give them an, a, an artificial monopoly so they can charge a higher price uh, to make up for the damage we've done in the first place. Why not get rid of the FDA and the patent system? So if I could get rid of one part of the patent system, I would get rid of pharmaceuticals first. I would get rid of patent trolls and process patents last because those are the weakest patents. And they do the least damage. Like patent trolls, for example, oh, they're annoying, but all they want is a little cut of your – they're like a mafia guy that just wants mm -hmm. a little take. They want 2%, 5%. They don't want to kill you, but if your competitor gets a patent, they want to kill you. They don't want you to make a competing product. They want to shut you down if they can. So the biggest problem with patents are good patents that are high quality that will be upheld in court, that can be used by a competitor who's actually practicing in this, and they want to shut down their competitors. It's not weak patents or low-quality patents or patent trolls or even process patents are, are harder to detect, right? and they're harder to enforce. So I would eliminate the patents that are the most conspicuous and the, the, the ones that people say are the strongest case for patents, which is pharmaceuticals. And by the way, if anyone's interested in this, and we can't go into this in detail, there's a book online by economists McKelly Boldrin and David Levine. It's called Against Intellectual Monopoly. And they take an empirical mainstream economic approach to this. And if you go to againstmonopoly.org, look at chapter seven or nine of their book. It's online. And they just explode all the myths about why patents 
benefit pharmaceutical companies and why they're necessary for pharmaceutical innovation. Great. I'll have to check that out. One question I want to ask is you know, someone like Tyler Cowen, who's a, as far as I understand, a libertarian, but not an Austrian economist and, and believes in the, believes that the Fed does a reasonably good job. What does he not believe that folks like Stefan or VJ, who introduces Stefan, Boypati believe, like, what is sort of the crux of the disagreements there? Because he is a libertarian or, or shares some of the, those types of values. From what I know about Tyler, I think he is a libertarian. I'm not sure. He may even be an anarchist, but most of the people that are even associated with Tyler, they're not even the Austrians that, I mean, look, the strand of Austrian economics that I think makes sense is based upon this idea that we come up with economic laws by the power of deduction from knowing internally what the structure of human action is. Okay. And so that's what Mises called praxeology, which is the logic of human action. He came up with that word. So all I'm saying is there are, there are a group of Austrian economists who are more influenced by Hayek, who was Mises' student, like Tyler Cowen's associates and friends at George Mason and other places like that. And they are more empirical minded and, and, and less praxeological. Tyler Cowen is not either one, as far as I know. He's not an Austrian of any type. So I think he would be more of a mainstream economist. So he would believe, but look, even like Milton Friedman, who was a Chicago economist and the, and the guy who wrote this article on positive economics, even he opposed, say, for example, um, a minimum wage. He, he thought you should just have a reverse or negative income tax. So even he thought that standard economic reasoning would lead to a more efficient way of doing things if you do want to intervene in the economy. The praxeology is, I think, a fancy word for assuming that we know how people behave, you know, sort of in, first intuiting how we think people ought to behave and then simply saying, well, I'm going to assume my intuition is right. From this, I'm going to deduce, you know, how the world works in my brain. And I think that what mainstream economists have found is that this very often fails. So I can deduce that, you know, I can fly off a cliff if I just flap my arms. But then, you know, no matter how vigorously and uh, prolifically I assert this axiom in writing, I will fall to the bottom of the cliff and die if I try. Because there is such a thing as extant reality and humanity has limited ability to impose our axioms on reality. Although the economy is a very complex phenomenon, and although humans are a very difficult thing to model, and although human beings are are smart and will adjust their behavior to what you do and all this stuff, despite all those things, there are lots of elements of extant reality that affect the economy that we can't assume away. A, A quick example, even you know, just assuming that all monopolies ultimately flow from the government as as just an assumption and that without government you have perfect competition doesn't make a lot of sense for two reasons. Number one is that, well, why was the government an, a natural monopoly in the first place? Why should the use of force or compulsion, why should armies and police and courts and things like that be subject to increasing returns, be subject to this economy of scale that makes it so we only have one government, one big government that rules everybody naturally. And that's but the natural state of affairs. We don't have 200 in the world. We don't have just one. Oh, no, then you're, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. But okay, so within within like an area, why why does government, you know, have any kind of natural monopoly within its little boundaries or regions or whatever? 
And why doesn't this happen to companies in other sort of markets besides the market for kicking people's ass and telling them not to steal things? Like, why does, you know, why do other markets work differently than that? And so, in fact, there's, there's no obvious good reason why that should be true. And so we find lots of evidence that market power, you know, network effects and economies of scale and terms, all these kind of things exist. You know, I used to, I used to ask my students, I would say, um, you know, how many of you like Facebook? And, and maybe one person would raise their hand and I'd say, well, how many of you are on Facebook? And everybody would raise their hand. And, and Facebook, it has a network effect because if you're friends, you could make an exact Facebook clone that nobody's on and nobody would use it because nobody else was using it. That's a network effect. That's not to say Facebook is an absolute monopoly because obviously you can have other uh, social networks compete with them to some degree. But but the fact that Facebook, you know, that, that it doesn't just lose or gain vast amounts of market share very quick is kind of an indication that, you know, there, there's a lot of stickiness there. Uh, you know, once you commit to being on Facebook and having your photos on there and having, all, you know, knowing a bunch of people on there and doing your events on there and all that stuff, once everybody commits, it's difficult and slow for people to defect or for people to leave. Pretty, and then that's just one example. You have you have phone networks. You don't see you don't see like two competing networks of phone lines, two competing networks of sewers, two competing networks of uh, electrical grids and uh, and things like that. Because it only makes sense to have one of these networks. That is a network effect. That is an economy of scale. That is, if not a natural monopoly certainly a natural local monopoly. And so, you know, you just, you, you look and you see very strong signs of these things existing and, and you can say, okay, well, empirics are never, you know, ironclad. You can never completely trust empirics. Yeah. But I mean, like eventually the evidence just, and so you can use praxeology to assert that all those situations where it looks like there's network effects that cause monopoly power are actually perfect competition and that only the government is the real monopoly. You can say that as much as you want, but then evidence appears to indicate that extant reality doesn't agree with those axiomatic assertions. Yeah, I get, I get that, that pushback, but your whole way of looking at things is so steeped in the, in the sort of positivist view of economics that like your description of praxeology is, is just wrong. That's just not what you're classifying it almost like this sort of a antiquated Catholic natural law version. It's not, it's not that at all. It's not about how we just, we assume things or what we want them to be and deduce them. Praxeology is just the idea that we want to understand market phenomena that we do observe. And we, we understand it by realizing that we are human actors because we are all human actors from the inside. And if you just reflect upon that, we realize simply that this is what praxeology is. It's very simple. We are human actors who want to change what's going to happen in the future. We have some end in mind. And so we, we, we use our understanding of the world to use means to achieve our end. That's all. But that simple understanding of what humans do has lots of consequences for economic categories like, uh, like uh, opportunity cost. Profit, loss, things like that. So it's just how we understand and categorize what we're doing. Uh, it's not, it's not some kind of, kind of a, a pseudo scientific imposing our views on others. It's simply understanding the consequences of actions. If, you know, as a simple example, when two people trade, they exchange. A, A, A and B exchange something they each have for what 
for the other, the other hat. The standard way of looking at it would be to equate the value of those things, right? They're each the same value. But the Austrians would say, no, first of all, value is ordinal, not cardinal. That means it has an order. You only rank values of things, but you, they don't have a, a, an empirical measurable value. And when I take your apple and you take my orange, we each value the thing that the other had more than what we had. That's why we engage in the exchange. And that's why trade leads to an overall increase in net value or net wealth for all of society. Every exchange makes the other party better off, even though nothing was so-called created. And that's just a consequence of understanding the nature of property and the nature of human action and the nature of trade. No math was needed. No measuring was needed. No empirical experiment was needed. And I, I would just reject this idea that, that it might be true that if you increase the money supply, prices will go uh, down instead of up. It's literally impossible uh, unless something else changes, which was which was not assumed to be constant in, in, the, in the original experiment. Same thing with minimum wage. Lots of other things we know. We know that free trade, if, we, if Trump imposes tariffs on trade, it will make both sides worse off. We know that if we wanted to make both sides better off, the United States should simply unilaterally abolish all of its import tariffs. That would make both sides better off. We know this from standard economic reasoning. You can have political reasoning that says, well, we shouldn't do that as a tactic because then we can get the other side to lower the – but that's not the point. I mean, all, these, have to- all these things that you're saying are just proof by assertion. None of these – you know, you're saying we know X, we know Y. We, how do we know them? Uh, did this knowledge well, – does God grant us this knowledge? No. Are we born with this knowledge? No. Can we deduce this knowledge? No. We can't. We cannot deduce this knowledge. Oh no, it's not deduced. The axiom that humans act to further their own interests. We can't. Well, I'm not proving it here with a few assertions, but I'm saying that this is already well known in classical economics that the free trade benefits both parties. There are theories that say that, but those are just theories. Theories. The map is not the territory. And theories are not reality. You see, so this this is why this is why what I find interesting about Austrian economics is it does get into serious philosophy and epistemology. It's realistic. It doesn't just make these sort of kind of bromides and assertions that you learn in grad school. I mean, this is what we teach our students. And this is why I said earlier. I Did think you go to grad school. I've gone to grad school twice, actually. Yeah. Did you go to grad school in economics? No, I didn't. I said that. Then how do you know we learn bromides? How do you know that's what we're learning? Well, Sorry. I'm I'm hearing there from a lot of people. They got to be coming somewhere. Mm, I mean, maybe I occasionally heard a bromide, but that wasn't <laughs> most of what I learned. Most of what I learned was, you know, math. Well, I've I've heard a lot of times that you have to have a patent system to encourage innovation. How many times have you heard that? And which is completely- I would say that I would say that that is probably a minority view among economists. Really? Yeah, I would say that. You know. Yeah, I mean, for abolishing the patent system, like one percent or less. Uh, you know what? We could uh, we could name, look it up. Name one other than McKelly Boldrin and David Levine. I'd be interested to know, except for the Alex few. I want to redirect a little bit on. So I want to talk about business cycles. I want to talk about monetary policy. But perhaps we can give a little bit of um, just historical context leading up to that. So it's my understanding that Austrian economics, in fact, was mainstream economics up until perhaps. The late 1800s, when we first left the the gold standard, perhaps Stefan, you can give some of the historical context of of how that evolved, and then we can get into some of the differences at, uh, from different schools on business cycle, monetary policy today. I would say that until 
fairly recent times that some Austrian presumptions were shared by most modern economists. I mean, uh, Karl Menger in 1871, I believe, wrote his treatise, which started the mainstream Austrian school. It had its roots in scholasticism and some earlier thinkers. But I think the subjective and the marginal revolution, right, the, the, the solution of the diamond water paradox, which is this sort of idea, the paradox, which was why would people pay more for a diamond than water when water's obviously more useful? And Menger helped solve that with some other thinkers, with the idea of marginal value, right? The idea that people value things on the margin. Like, you don't value every dollar you have equally. You, you value the next dollar according to what want it could serve, right? So the, the million first dollar is worth less to you than the millionth dollar and so on. Anyway, so that way, that way of thinking, which is rooted in subjective value theory and individualist thinking, uh, helped to start what the Austrians, the Austrian revolution. Then you had the corruption of economics in some branches by this labor theory of value of Marx and Adam Smith, which originated, in my view, partly with John Locke and his labor theory of property, which led to intellectual property. See, all, in my view, all these things link together that the idea of Locke was that we homestead or we come to own things by mixing our labor with them, and we own our labor, and therefore we own these things, right? Which I think is a mistake in logic. This is the problem which leads to the intellectual property idea. If you labor on some idea that's useful, you should have an ownership right in that too. This is part of the argument we get, we have for patent and copyright now. But that led, I believe, to the labor theory of value of Smith and others, which led to uh, Marxian economics, right? And this, this, we even hear this now with Ocasio-Artiz saying that employees need a minimum wage because they're not being compensated for the complete value of labor that they contribute to the final product. But she's just repeating Marxian – sorry, I don't want to use the word bromides again, but Marxian fallacious propositions about labor. So this has infected a large deal of e economics. And then you have the Milton Friedman, the positive school, the Chicago economists who believe in you know, testing things empirically. At least they have a free market basis, and at least they want to test things. And they have some are rooted in reality to some degree. But I think they're all mistaken. I think that the, the Austrian branch, which is rooted in subjective economics and the understanding of the importance of a free market for property rights and for money, is the one that gives us the most understanding of the consequences of policies that, that, that affect human beings. What has the data shown since we've left the, the gold standard in 1871? And if anyone wants to give even more color to when we, we left it again, you know, in 1950s or, or later on, so one, does anyone want to give even more historical context? And then two, does anyone want to interpret the, the data? Oh, of course, since we left the gold standard, prices have been inflating steadily. The price level was more or less constant until this happened in the early 1900s. So the government's constantly eroding the, the, the value of money, and the business cycles have gotten worse. So the central banks were created as an alleged fix to the, the, the business cycle problem. Look, the problem with the business cycle theory, the, the empirical view, which Noah kind of alluded to earlier – is that it doesn't have a theory behind it. A, a cycle means that something recurs, right? And, it, and if it's a business cycle, it, it affects the whole economy. So it's not sector-wide. It has to affect the whole economy, and it has to recur over and over again. And the only explanation for that that I've heard that makes any sense is the, is the central control of the supply of money and credit by a central authority. So they inflate the money supply. That causes an artificial boom. It distorts prices. It gives rise to cantillon effects and inflation. And then there's going to be an inevitable crash later. And so the, the, the contemporary view of business cycles is that 
the boom is good and the crash is bad and that like in the Great Depression, the problem was that the government, the central bank, didn't inflate enough to stop the deflation that was being caused in the depression. The Austrian view is the opposite. They view the boom as the problem because that's where the government is causing misallocations of capital because of the artificial price signals that they're distorting by artificially lowered interest rates because of the inflation of the money supply, which causes investment in, pro in projects that will not be profitable, and they're doomed to failure because the people aren't saving enough to buy the products that are going to be produced. And so inevitably, something touches off the recession, and the Austrian view is that the government should step back and let the recession happen. That is the repairing of the errors that were made, the liquidation of these errors, and let the economy come back to to help. One of my friends, Bob Murphy, who's one of the, the leading Austrian economists on the younger side, has studied the non-existent the recession of 19, I think 20 or 21, when the government let a similar in his 50s? thing. Isn't Bob in his 50s? Yeah, okay. Okay, I'm a little bit old. <laughs> no, he's not. I'm, I'm 53. Oh. I think Bob's in his 40s. <laughs> oh, he's in his 40s. Okay. <laughs> But okay, I'm thinking okay, the older guys are all in their 60s or that I know. But uh, but no, he. The point is, there was a recession that never happened in 1921 because the government didn't intervene, right? Um, so if you have a, a recession that's sparked off because of an artificial boom caused by the government central banks, just let it happen. It'll liquidate pretty quickly, and the government will get back on the path to health. Whereas everyone else thinks the government has to have a soft landing, they have to inflate the money supply, they have to manipulate interest rates, they have to push on a string. All these ridiculous things which are trying to fix a problem that the government caused in the first place, just like the patent system is in a sense held out as a response to the FDA problem. I mean government – Mises said that you know controls breed controls because every intervention causes distortions and causes problems, and then the government has to solve those problems and sometimes tries to take credit for it, even though they caused the problem in the first place, sort of like Maduro in Venezuela right now. I'm, I'm curious to Eric's point if there is a, uh, a quantitative way of looking at this, right? So you've asserted that the business cycle has gotten worse. Um, do, do we know how to measure that? Uh, I mean, I understand the theory that you presented, but I'm curious um, how you would um, look at that through data. So yeah, and so I would probably I might disagree with some of my fellow Austrians on this. I think that is actually hard to do. So I think that um, the benefit of historical episodes, and this is why I mentioned Mises' theory in history earlier. He distinguishes between theory, which basically makes ceteris paribus or non-quantitative predictions. It says that if you do this, everything else being equal, the following will happen. If you set in motion a, uh, a credit in, in, in inflation, then you will start off a business cycle, a boom, and then that will inevitably result in a bust. But we can't predict when it will happen or what the extent will be. So we can look at historical episodes, but we only do that to try to illustrate the empirical of uh, the deductive point. And so, like for example, Rothbard did a great study on the Great Depression where he did look at empirical data in retrospect to try to, try to illustrate that the Austrian theory was borne out in that episode. My personal view is that since then, the, the economy's gotten so complicated and the methods used by the central banks have gotten so complicated, it's all mushy and spread out and hard to measure. But basically, you can see that the housing crisis of 2008, and, and some Austrians think we have another big recession coming up. I am personally skeptical of the ability of using economics 
per se to be able to predict what's going to happen, which is why a lot of people throw their hands up and they say, well, then what good is it? Because they want a cash value. You know, they want, they think economics is just a useless uh, game if you can't use it to know how to invest your money and make a profit, which is sort of the any intellectual attitude displayed when people say, well, if you're so smart, why aren't you rich? I mean, let's be serious. I mean, economic theory is, is different than the art of investing or the skill of being an entrepreneurial investor. So I, I think that the, the recessions we've seen have been in the background. We have recessions on occasion. I think the ones that we've noted empirically that have been, that have stood out since the, since the 1920s or the 30s, I think they are caused in the United States by Federal Reserve policy by and large, and they are fairly cyclical and recurring. When the next one is coming, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't make the particular objection that you're, you know, uh, dismissive of because I think that's fair, right? Theory can be valid, and you can you can have more data or less data to support it. I'm just curious: it, could we look at data to imagine what the counterfactual would be like? Are there natural experiments that exist that would tell us something about this? So, for example, when people talk to me about hard currency, um, I point them at the aftermath of the Greek crash, right? So arguably the last Greek uh, recession was caused by an excess of government spending, as you might say, that's bad. But afterwards, it was pretty painful for them because it turns out they have no control over their currency, right? So that seems like a case where we can look at this and say, okay, well, you've got a recession, set aside what it's caused by. Would it have been better had they been able to stimulate the, the economy by spending? Spending money, for example. But but you see, this is the you can't set aside the the, the the reason that caused it. And when you say the you talk about the pain, the, see the Austrian view is that the pain is it's not a good thing, but it's a it's a it's a, it's a necessary and inevitable sure. thing. The pain is going to come, and in fact, the pain is baked in because I think that we have increasing prosperity in the world because of the increase. Uh, the, the accumulation of technological knowledge, which is one reason I'm against the patent system, is because it retards the spread of technological knowledge. So I think that as we accumulate recipes, as you could call them, as Austrians do, that and as, as we have more people and the division of labor spreads and you have more property rights spreading across the globe, we have gradual increase in, in GDP per person. But this is retarded because you have this little up and down wave on top of that on top of that increasing slope, and that is the business cycle, which is caused by the government always manipulating the supply of money and credit. And that ripple destroys capital and therefore lowers the overall growth of the overall curve. So if you had a smoother curve going up, it would go up at a higher rate. That's just my sort of uh, explanation of it. Can I yeah. jump in and say some macroeconomic yeah. things? Sorry, go ahead. Grad school had to be good for something, so you know. <laughs> <a lot. laughs> I, I really want to use my knowledge. Okay, so uh, two things. Number one, so a little while back, you said that if you print money, inflation will happen. And, you know, that makes a lot of sense to me. It makes a lot of sense. But is it definitionally true? You know, if you look at Japan and you look at the amount of money that Japan has printed. Of course, they don't really print money, whatever. Who cares? But look at the amount of money they've printed since their economy slowed down, especially since Abe came to power. They have printed money and they have bought bonds. They have printed money and they've bought stocks. The Bank of Japan owns a significant portion of the entire of all of corporate Japan at this point. They've printed so much money and bought so much stocks. 
Uh, they've printed money. They've just printed so much money. Uh, the money supply in Japan, M2 or whatever you want to measure it, has just gone up by so much. And yet Japan's inflation hasn't even hit the 2% target and they've slipped back into deflation. Something is wrong with the idea that money printing causes inflation. There might be something else going on. And we can say, well, you know, obviously the, you can, you can sort of shove all the, the failures of the theory into the, the ceteris paribus, right? Into the, um, into the like, well, there must be something else going on. And yeah, maybe there's something else going on. But if we can't tell what else is going on and we're trying and we're asking a practical question, like what happens if we print a ton of money? And you can say, well, the answer used to be, well, you're going to get some inflation. And I'd say that looking at the experience of Japan and to a lesser extent us, but especially Japan, the real answer is, well, we just don't know. And that's the first observation I'd like to make. The second observation I'd like to make is about the Federal Reserve. Now, you made a big factual error earlier. If you look at the volatility of GDP and the amount that the uh, the growth line squiggles, you know, those fluctuations, you actually see that before we went off the gold standard, during both the 1800s and the early 1900s, the classical gold standard and the sort of like, you know, modified gold standard that we had in the early 20th century. For both those periods, actually, there was more volatility of GDP. Just uh, load up the data, load it into Python or whatever, and type, you know, like, or just call like a variance function. You see that it was higher. Employment, same thing. And yeah, we've had constant, you know, usually fairly low level inflation since we went off the gold standard, but we have had a smoother real economy since then. And that's um, just a fact. Well, uh, let me respond to a couple of those. It may be smoother by some measure, but that's, to my mind, not the goal of anything. Smoothness is not a goal. Uh, okay, that's fine. That's fine. Smoothness is I was just saying, that's the fact. As, as for inflation, Austrians do use the word inflation in, I would say, an idiosyncratic way, but we use it in the old-fashioned way. By inflation, we mean inflating the supply of money and credit, not the price inflation result. So we review... Okay. So what you're saying is that if you print more money, you will have printed more money. Can but I I'm not that? saying printing. I'm saying inflate, increase the supply of money and credit, and that's not done primarily by actually printing money. So that's a simplistic way of viewing it. Uh, my friend B.J. Boyapati, who you mentioned earlier, actually wrote a, a paper about six, seven years ago for my journal, libertarianpapers.org, where he argues that the reason we haven't had price inflation is because we haven't had money supply inflation because the central bank is unable to do it by the techniques. They're, if they printed money and dropped it in helicopters, they could do it that way. But they are pushing on a string in some ways. He's got a theory of that. I don't weigh in on that. I, I'm simply saying that we do distinguish between price inflation and money supply. So we say that if you increase the supply of money and credit, all things being equal, you will tend to get price inflation. And I don't see how anyone can deny that. And you can point to some cases where it doesn't look like the evidence is bearing that out, but it could be that maybe the government is not increasing the money supply as much as you think because they're not effective at doing that. Or it could be that the GDP, the real GDP, is growing enough to mask it. Or it could be that we're not counting certain things in the measure of price inflation that we should. For example, the stock market keeps going up. House prices keep going up. Maybe that's where the inflation, the price inflation is. So I would say that. As for your volatility upgrading, look, 
I'm not talking about relative smoothness from one generation to the other. I was simply trying to use a model people can picture in their minds so that they can explain the Austrian view of how the business cycle harms productivity. It is an up and down movement on the upward growth. And if you look at the price inflation rate that we've measured and the GDP per person of humanity, it was relatively constant until about 1800, 1700. And then the Industrial Revolution happened for various reasons that no one is, seems to be sure about right now. I have my own theories about that. But that started going up exponentially at that point. Okay. Right. That's right. So basically price per person was relatively flat because the government didn't have – they had the ability to clip money, right? They could take a piece of the gold coins that they minted. They could monopolize it. They could take people's money from them by this little inflation, but they couldn't in, in, easily increase the overall supply of money when it was rooted in a commodity standard like gold or, or some other commodity. So I, I'm not making the claims that you're – I think it's a little bit of a straw man because I'm, I'm not saying that it's, we're smoother now than, or that we're smoother in the past than we are now. I'm simply saying that when the government intervenes, one way that they reduce economic productivity and growth is by the business cycle, which doesn't need to be there. So about that, about whether the business cycle needs to be there or not, I can't really say, although it's my impression that a lot – that Austrians have painted business cycles as cleansing. And that some no, Austrians. No, the recession is a liquidation, but the business cycle is not a good thing. But when you have an artificial boom stimulated by an artificial increase in the supply of money and credit, which lowers interest rates, right, which makes it more feasible to engage in more projects that you couldn't have afforded easier because you can borrow more money now, right, if interest rates are lower. So you can engage in more long term projects to produce goods in the future that you think consumers will be able to buy because you think they have saved more because that's normally what drives interest rates down. So the Austrian view is that in a, in, in a sound economy, you would have a natural rate of interest caused by people's willingness to wait for things in the future, right? Their, their, their time preference. The less time preference they have, then they save more. And when they save more, there's more, there's more credit available. When there's more credit available, interest rates go down. When interest rates go down, people invest in projects for the future to make more widgets that these people can afford in the future because they've saved more. So there's a natural connection between the future and the past, which is a big part of Mises' theory of money credit from the 19, I think 1912 or something like that, and the Austrian theory of money. But when the government comes in and starts inflating the supply of money and credit, they lower the interest rate. That's their purpose. That's what they want to do. They make people invest in projects that they otherwise wouldn't have, but that the consumers haven't saved up for, so they can't afford it in the future. So inevitably, this will come. This will be revealed, and when it's revealed, these projects that are not sustainable and should not have been invested in, they liquidate, and that is a cleansing, you can call it. So the recession. We don't, we don't say it's a good thing, but it is the restoring of the economy back to a normal health. It's getting rid of the excesses caused by the boom. It's like when you're high on drugs and you have a high, you have to stop taking drugs at some point and you crash. The crash is not pleasant, but you have to do that to get off of the high and to get back to health. That's how we look at the business cycle. I'm just saying that like a lot of these claims, you know, that you're making are not deducible with logic. They are empirical claims. They are claims that could be supported or refuted by data. And although macro data is really hard, you know, like each recession only happens once and the business cycle, you know, is pretty global. And, you know, maybe each recession is a little bit different than the last, et cetera, et cetera. So it's hard to get good high quality data. You can't put the economy 
in a lab and test it like you can physics, chemistry, all that stuff. But you can amass a vast array of sort of incidental evidence and build a case as you would in court. And, you know, a lot of these assertions um, that Austrian economists like to make about the business cycle sort of don't end up panning out when we look at real business cycles in the United States and out of the United States. And there's just a lot of, you know, and, and then, and then of course, you know, Austrians will say, oh, well, ceteris paribus, you know, actually all the things he said were true. And these facts can and uh, kill our, our worldview. But then you say, well, at some point, who cares? Like if you can take all the, the stuff that violates your worldview and shove it into the ceteris paribus, paribus and claim that your worldview is, is still correct by pure logic, who cares? What we really care about is the real effect of policy. And if you're asking, what will happen to my economy if my central bank prints a lot of money? And Austin say, inflation, price inflation will happen, prices will go up, ceteris paribus. And then what actually happens is prices don't go up. Who cares about the ceteris paribus? What everybody really wants to know is like, what's really going to happen in real life? And I feel like all this, you know, sort of, yeah, see, that's the cash value mentality that, oh, I, I just want you to be able to predict what's going to happen. But let me ask you a serious question. If, if you had to choose between a world like we have now where the federal government has a central federal reserve and, and they have their current policy for, uh, for inflating or for controlling the supply of money and credit like they do to try to tame unemployment, Right and, uh, and 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 all their dual goals and or triad goals, or if we had a world where basically there was no central bank and there was just a completely free market supply of money, which was let's just say it was gold, mm-hmm. it was, let's say it was almost fixed and that it was just gold and the government had no ability to inflate it, deflate it, and it was totally a free market phenomena, sort of like Bitcoin or Facebook are now, right? Or Bitcoin could yep. be. Which one do you think would actually, in practice, lead to more prosperity for the human race or for Americans? Do you think the Federal Reserve System or a free market in gold? If you had oh, only those Federal Reserve System, for sure, wow. absolutely, no question. And, wow. and there's there's many reasons for that, and and it has, you know, like you just compared look at look at, yeah, it absolutely has. Compared to what? Compared to. I mean, like you look at the growth in the 19th century and you look at the growth in the 20th century. The yeah, 20th century just. So, Austria, so you have to compare it to what would have been. I mean, you can't know that. That's a counterfactual. So that's All right. how we would. All right, <laughs> fine. But then you, you compare the catch up growth to countries that developed while on the gold, while on a gold standard to countries that grew while having central banks. The countries with the central banks kicked butt and grew a yeah. lot faster. Yeah, but but you know the the logical fallacy of correlation and causation. I mean, well, you're right. You're right. Who knows? You're right. You could be right. But but don't say like, wow, how can you possibly think that? Well, I'm just I'm actually shocked. I mean, I I don't know. Maybe you're right. Maybe you're right. And you know, like like I said, you know, you can only gather circumstantial evidence. You can't put the macroeconomy in a lab and test its properties. But this is your mentality. So you think we have to have, see, this is the mentality of the positive economic. You think we need to have evidence and do tests and have comparative studies. You know, even that methodology that you're doing, you know that it rests upon philosophy ultimately. You cannot go back. You can't ultimately rest everything on logical positivism. Ultimately, we have to make assumptions about the world. Maybe the laws of physics will change tomorrow. Yes, we know that. 
it's the paradox of induction. We all learn that in like freshman philosophy. That's not what I mean. What, so the Austrian view is a dualistic view. So I think you're correct in what you said about the laws of causality. So we don't know if the law of gravity will continue tomorrow because we can never we prove don't. We only have the empirical scientific method. That's right. But we do know that it, when humans act, they act to prefer what they're aiming at and that they prefer that to their second choice. It's not possible to disprove that by an experiment. And this is what praxeology and the laws of economics aim at is getting – and we do introduce empirical, uh, empirical contingent assumptions to make, as Mises says, to make the results interesting. So, for example, we could do a lot of economics assuming a barter society, and it wouldn't be that useful. But we also – we say, well, let's assume we have a money, a medium of exchange. Then what consequences – because you don't have to have money. You could have a barter society. So Austrian economics in, introduces contingent empirical assumptions, but it does it explicitly. It says, okay, let's assume there's a money, or you could even say let's assume there's a government that has the following interventions. What would happen? So that's the difference in approach between the two schools. I just think people should be aware that there are different approaches and not assume that what we're doing is pseudoscience and just some ooga-booga natural law Catholic church stuff, which is not. Because <laughs> <laughs> I know the typical criticisms we get, the straw man stuff. I'm just imagining the ooga booga slur being love, being <laughs> with the Catholic Church. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm imagining you know primitive, atavistic, super superstitious you know uh, ideas that are not scientific and modern and rational. So, Stefan, I guess as I hear the the Austrian argument for hard currency, a common claim that I hear made, and it's maybe implied by by um, your perspective here, is look. If we had hard currency, if there weren't inflation, people would save more, right? So this discourages saving, and it, often this is, comes along with the claim that this is theft, right? I, I hear this often in the context of why we should all be on Bitcoin and fiat is evil and immoral and so on. So at some point, I just said, you know what? Like, let me do the math. If I were sitting there in 1900 and I said I've got a hundred dollars, there's this classic chart that everybody shares around how much how much money you've had stolen from you. What a dollar, 1900 dollar would be worth today. And you do the math and you say, look, if you just took a hundred bucks and you put it in the stock market today, it would be worth, let me see. I, let me look this up. You would have made uh, 12x on your, uh, your investment and adjusted for inflation. You would have, uh, actually, I don't have that right handy, but effectively, if you've taken your money and put it in the stock market, this inflation is completely erased, right? The idea being that um, mild inflation causes investment as opposed to, you know, non-productive spending, that that no, leads to growth. And then we all get I, I was with you until that part. How, how does, how does mild inflation encourage saving? How does that come out of what you just said? Well, so it encourages me to not leave my money in a bank account, right? If I'm losing 2% a year to inflation, I should not put my money in a bank account. I should put it somewhere where I can get greater okay. than 2%, right? So I should invest that money. I should put it to work with someone directly or indirectly. Okay. Okay. Well, let me respond to that. First of all, and again, I, I'm not representing every Austrian and things I say. I have my own view that's resulted from my particular brand. Austrians do not distinguish savings and investment are the same thing. But so, in other words, it is true that people will save or invest less if there is a higher price inflation rate because it reduces their, it increases their time preference. 
if the future is worth less because the government is shipping away at it by inflation, then they will invest or save less. That's why it harms the productivity rate of the human race is because we don't invest as much capital for long-term projects. But when a person decides to consume some of their income, right? As opposed to saving or investing it, that ratio is affected by the inflation rate caused by government monetary policy. But the ratio between savings and investment is a different issue. So, for example, if I decide to save you know, $1,000 a month, I can put some in the stock market or some in the bank. Now, the bank might give me 1% or 2% because that's the way things are right now, and that's not even keeping up with inflation. Or especially with taxes, with with gain, with, ta- with taxes on my gains, uh, or I can put it in the market, which is a little bit riskier. In a free market, I have no idea what the ratio would be. Maybe, maybe you would put even more in the stock market. People would keep a certain amount of their of their savings investment in cash. And they would keep a certain amount in other types of investment, which would make a higher rate. I think we can say that the amount of wealth or income that you have that you don't consume or spend. You're either going to put it into a higher risk, higher return investment like the stock market, or you're going to put it in a bank. Now, in a free market, where let's say there's let's forget about Bitcoin, let's just say there's gold, and there's let's say there's no price, there's no money supply inflation of gold. Your gold would increase, appreciate every year by let's say three four percent. So there would be mild price inflation, which to Austrian ears is a good thing. Price inflation means that your money goes further every year. If you just put your money in cash, it's going to go up by 4% a year. I'm just pulling this number out of my head. But the stock market's going to have to go up more. Otherwise, no one would ever invest. So it would go by, say, 10%. So some people would put some of their money in the stock market and try to get 10% growth. Some would put it in the bank and just get 4% growth. What that ratio would be in a free market as opposed to now, I think is, is, is unknowable because there are factors that you can imagine both directions. And this is stuff uh, I can't point. I can't say this is a foundational or a, a widespread Austrian view. This is my understanding from the reading and the thinking I've done on this. Yeah, I guess I'm not clear. I mean, what you have seen with Bitcoin, which has just been interesting. I mean, I know it's not a currency, but what you've seen is it's failed spectacularly as a currency because people just want to hold on to it, right? Because it seems to be um, deflationary. People actually aren't putting it to use which seems unproductive, right? It seems like you would want a system where the incentive across the population is to invest, presumably indirectly through whoever can make best use of that capital, but that policy should nudge people towards that activity to create broad economic prosperity. Well, I, I personally don't believe money is capital. I think money is not a, a, a wealth. It's not a resource. Money is just a medium of exchange. Um, and so it's not capital that's not being invested. It's, it's just a medium of exchange. I think the, I don't think Bitcoin has failed. I think that Bitcoin has not been widely adopted as the new money is for two reasons. Number one, the government taxes capital gains and it's, the, the legal environment is very uncertain. So people are reluctant to do it. And, and, a, and a second reason is that it, it's possibly becoming monetized, and so people are using it as a speculative investment, like like me, for example. But the, the, the third reason is we already have money. We have dollars. They're not perfect, but once you have money, the need to have a second money is, is diminished. Uh, the, the, the function and the purpose of money, the reason money arises is because without money, there are two big problems of, of a barter society. Number one is… 
the double coincidence of wants. People that have things they want to trade mm-hmm, might sure. not find someone, you know, so that problem. So having a medium of exchange solves the double coincidence of wants. And as Mises pointed out in his argument against the rationality of socialism and central planning is that money prices allow you to have rational economic calculation. That is, entrepreneurs can do experiments in their head predicting how much money in empirical quantitative cardinal terms they can earn on different projects, different uses for their capital in the future, and they can compare them and try to invest in the ones that make the most money. Otherwise, you're groping in the dark, as Mises says. That's why socialist economies have to fail because they have no price signals to guide them. Well, but I mean, there's a big there's a big gap between sort of Marxism. I think I I don't like to use the word socialism because I think it means a bunch of different things to a bunch of different people. It's like there's there's a big gap between Marxism and um, Austrian economics, and it seems to me, you know, when I look at entrepreneurs and I look what they're doing, I mean, they're pretty capable of engaging in that, this activity that we both agree is um, desirable. What uh, seems to be a positive property of the economy is when you have mild inflation and low interest rates, just tons of money, arguably too much money, uh, flows into the innovation economy, and we just max it out, right? Like we're investing in crazy stuff. But when you look at the venture economy, for example, it's teeny tiny in the grand scheme of things, right? So if we Let's say, for example, we put four times as much money as we should be putting productively into venture capital. Now, it turns out that all of that money comes from folks who can afford to get a slightly depressed uh, return on their investment. And we get all that innovation. It's just, it, from my perspective, it, that seems pretty awesome. So I'm trying to understand um, this counterfactual where as opposed to putting your money in the S&P and then that flowing up into SoftBank and then writing billion dollar checks to everybody, you're saying, look, I get 4% on my Bitcoin or my gold or my whatever it is. Let me, you know, I call this sticking it under your mattress, right? Like to me, there's a high opportunity cost to um, sticking money under your mattress when you're looking at sort of the aggregate value that accrues to society as a function of monetary policy. So it seems to me that if instead I can say to you, look, like don't stick your money under your mattress. If you in 100 years want to have money, Put it in a broad index fund. This tide that is lifting all boats will lift yours. If you want to stick it under your mattress, you don't want to participate in the system. We're just going to give you a mild tax, right? Two percent a year to just sit on your hands. And well, you know, but the tax, the tax, the inflation tax affects stock market investments too. It affects everything. So it's not. It's just. It's an overall depression on savings investment together. That's why I said affects. It affects that ratio. But look, everyone needs some amount of cash in their holdings because you need cash to use mm-hmm. it for the purpose of cash, which is a liquid means of payment. So everyone's going to have their, their savings investment, the stuff they don't consume, they're going to either put it in an investment or they're going to put it in some kind of cash. The ratio is is not empirically predictable. We can see what people have done in the past. So people would have some money in gold or under the mattress, as you say, and they would they would know that they earn or they might even lose money on that if there's if there's price inflation. But people have to have some amount of cash. You know, even in Venezuela, I imagine people have some cash lying around. They don't put everything in the market. In fact, the market's probably decimated there, right? Uh, cash as, in Venezuela, you don't have it anymore. <laughs> as, as for innovation, look, I, I've been a general counsel for a laser company. I do patents for them. That dealt with the VC scene. I don't know have any reason to believe that policies one way or the other divert more money into 
into innovation sector of the economy than should be or should um, not. Yeah, I mean, they do in a very practical way, and um, it, which is, um, you know, if you look at VC returns, for example, you're measured in terms of your IRR, right, your internal rate of return. And that's relative to the opportunity cost of putting that money somewhere else, right? So, you know, if interest rates are 1975 interest rates, venture just looks like an awful asset class, right? When um, interest rates are zero, more money than probably can efficiently be deployed is flowing in. And again, I think that that's sort of, you know, consenting adults losing their money, so I don't lose much sleep over that. But it certainly um, would be a much different environment for us economically if, if interest rates were um, significantly higher, there weren't that capital availability. I think another thing I'd be curious to get your comment on, we talk about the effect of inflation on savings, um, but there's this practical concern, which is in America, the vast majority of people not only have no savings, they have debt, right? So you could argue that that nets out, but... No, it's not true that your your median American has negative wealth. That is false. So what, what are... The American has about like $60,000 of wealth, which is well, not a hell of a lot, but... Yeah, where, where is it though? It's, uh, in their home. In their home? Yeah. Uh, in their pen, in a retirement fund? Yeah. So these are both, I mean, those are both long-term investments that net out inflation, presumably, right? Like, uh, you would tend to see that in the housing market and then as you invest. But I, I sort of, I find it interesting when people make the claim that inflation is theft to the extent that you have these other people who are borrowing money who, for them, it's, it's awesome, right? Like, I would love to see massive inflation if I wow, have. That's- and this is the what what the Austrians call Cantillon effects, right? The idea that when when, when there's inflation, price money supply inflation by the central bank, it does benefit the earlier holders, and it also has effects that can benefit some debtors as opposed to creditors or vice versa, depending on what's going on. But all that means to us is that it has a distorting effect on the free market economy. In a free market, mm-hmm. when the government did not interfere, I believe we would have no fewer business cycles. We have higher productivity. We would have some some amount of cash, some amount of investment, some amount of savings, some amount of spending, and he, but we would all be wealthier. That's the bottom line. How they're allocated among these sectors is really not the business of policy or the government. It's it's whatever the free market would result in in a given economy. I mean, my sense is, you know, AOC aside, that's that's not a the mainstream economics view would be to craft policies that are more about encouraging, for example, investment, as opposed to saying we should build X, Y, and Z, right? So lower interest rates are going to afford more lending, but that doesn't imply that you're going to get a loan and I'm not going to get a loan or vice versa. These aren't grants from the government. And and, and our response would be you shouldn't encourage investment because people live in the world and we, we make a certain amount of income and some of it we want to consume. The very purpose of making income is to be able to consume it. So some of it we want to invest in long-term projects. So encouraging investment is shifting this time horizon from the future to the or from the present to the future. But that's also a distortion of the economy. There's no reason for the government to distort the natural rate of interest that would that would would emerge from people's time preference. As we got richer as a society and more productive and had a, a deeper division of labor and more people, right, and 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 more wealth from our knowledge. Then people would probably have more excess capital to invest in future projects, and that would have a compounding effect. In fact, I think that's part of why we had the industrial revolution. We finally reached that tipping point in society. But the ratio, can, the government shouldn't just shouldn't interfere with that ratio. The government doesn't know how much we should invest and how much we should consume. 
Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that the way that I would think about policy is, look, you have a policy. You can't not have a policy, right? So the question is, what's the better policy? And I think the assumption that leads to the set of policies that you would disagree with is, look, if we afford uh, more investment in this way, that investment will, generally speaking, be positive. The economy will grow faster than the counterfactual. We will all be wealthier. More wealth is good. And then we can figure out after the fact how that wealth would be distributed. Well, and so, and so. so I, I actually don't think more wealth is good if you can never consume it. In other words, if we have 100% investment and we never consume, what's the point of the wealth? And so you have to have a division between how much of our income we devote towards consumption, how much towards investment that, that leads to the, to the wealth in the future that we can consume. If you, if you don't allow consumption, then there's no point to to wealth in the first place. So they, there has to be a natural balance. And and I I don't agree with that policy comment. The policy should be well, you know, as I mentioned pre-show, I'm an I, I'm against the state completely. I'm an anarchist libertarian. I think the policy should be abolish the government first and let the private property free market capitalist society rule. And then whatever happens in that society uh, is the is the natural result, and it's probably the best result we can we can count on. So, but my, my thought hearing all this stuff is the same as my thought, you know, usually reading Austrian economic stuff, which is that, you know, a lot of people have libertarian beliefs. A lot of people have free market beliefs about what ought to happen, you know, like government shouldn't take my money. Government shouldn't play games with my cash holdings by inflating the dollar and all, you know, government shouldn't tax me. Government shouldn't interfere with my business and all that stuff. Uh, sometimes those are right, in my opinion. Sometimes they're wrong. But people have these ideas, you know, libertarian ideas are perfectly natural and perfectly normal, but taking these and using sort of pseudo logic to reverse engineer, you know, a sort of a set of like faux axioms and, you know, sort of faux deductions and, you know, quasi pseudo empirical assertions is not the best way of upholding these beliefs because it's going to appeal to people. If, if you come up with a system of thought and a system of vocabulary and a system of fancy sounding, but ultimately kind of vacuous statements to justify people's libertarian beliefs, then people will instinctively find that thought system or pseudo thought system appealing whenever they need a reason to justify their libertarian beliefs, whenever they're looking for something to justify their, their idea that the government is being too intrusive, et cetera, et cetera. And that's natural. That's our human irrationality. That's just a sort of pseudo-rational uh, way that we work. But that's what Austrian economics is. It is ultimately mumbo-jumbo made up to rationalize our sometimes perfectly legitimate libertarian beliefs and ideals. But there's better ways. There's better ways than that. There's more rational ways. You know, there's both philosophical and economic ways to justify libertarian ideas that don't rely on subscribing whole hog to a system of pseudo thought and pseudo logic. And that is my basic position. At least you didn't use the word juvenile. <laughs> um, look, let me have a, a, a closing response. I, I appreciate that's the most polite quasi status diss I've ever gotten. So, uh, <laughs> You're conflating libertarianism and Austrianism, which is fine. We tried to distinguish them, but no, no, there's lots of libertarianism that isn't Austrian. 
it, true, but I, I'm I, look. I can only speak for myself, and I'm I'm I'm, I'm the melding of both. But uh, you're also engaging in psychologizing, which I, I'm not criticizing for. I, I engage in. I think psychologizing is fine as long as you if you if you if you grant that someone is wrong, and then you try to explain why. That's I'm perfectly fine with that. I think one thing you're unfortunately wrong about is saying that uh, this libertarian idea appeals to people. I wish it did. Is what appeals to people is getting stuff for free, which is why AOC gets votes and why you have all these idiotic college students running around talking about free college tuition. I wish you were right. Venezuela is failing because you're you're just wrong. People want things for free and they, they don't they don't understand basic economics, which you don't even need to be an Austrian Austrian to do. I, I didn't intend to come on the show and uh, be able to defend all of this stuff, I just wanted to explain it, and I'm not, I wasn't trying to be contentious in my debating. I'm just trying to, and I'm not trying to attack you at all. I hope you realize that. No, I, I do. I do realize it. Believe me, I, the libertarians are not always the welcome guy in the crowd. We, we view everyone else as a status that we're the only guys that are always being attacked by everyone else. Just want to, if people are more interested, I would just recommend that they should look at uh, my website, stephankinsella.com, which, and I have a lot of links to my intellectual property stuff and my lib- – I actually have a book coming out later this year. It's my libertarian – it's called Law in a Libertarian World, where I will elaborate a lot of this stuff, and I've been writing on this for a long time. And uh, Mises.org has lots of stuff on the basics of Austrian economics for people who are interested uh, in looking into this stuff further, but I can't defend it any – any more here, obviously. Guys, thank you very much for an awesome conversation. What could have uh, turned out turned into an all-out brawl, or it was a very interesting and uh, well well regarded conversation. Thank you all for for joining and being a part of it. Thanks, guys. You're great. Thanks. Thanks a lot. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst.